You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. George Washington knew that he had a powerful weapon in his grasp, one that could scare the average British recruit out of his boots. It did not fire a musket ball, nor was it a frightening artillery piece. It didn't even have a sharp edge. And in and of itself, it couldn't kill anyone. After all, it was just a shirt. The American Revolution is known for its outfits, in a way. We have images in our head. The, what are the British, right? The Redcoats, Americans, the lucky, really, among them, wearing buff and blue, all of that. But if I wanted to instantly signify that I was going to dress up like a Revolutionary War soldier and I had a real limited budget, the quickest way to do it would be, yeah, that's right, to put on one of those three-cornered hats. Why? Why did that hat get worn at that time? Well, it's a combo of things. Style, pride, politeness, military strategy, and practicality all dictated the use of the tricorn, the three-corner hat. It made you look good, it signified who you were, and in some cases it could avoid great pain and help you be a better soldier. Thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast where my history can beat up your politics. As you know, I have a couple of, like, things that I do, of, of different things that I do on the Premium Podcast. My favorite thing to do is, of course, just talk about leftovers, things that I didn't get to use in the cast, or, or talk about how I went about a cast, or talk about politics a bit, uh, and have some guests on, like Chris Novembrino has been helpful. I also began a kind of a mini podcast within a podcast uh, called Revolutionary War Sketches because one of the things I'm always continually educating myself on as I talk about history and politics through the 12 years that I've done this cast is I continuously read books about the American Revolution. We don't know about it well enough, in my opinion. People have a very limited view of the Revolutionary War and they could have a better one and I think that could all be improved. Um, I also think it relates to American politics in a way because it is the foundation. It's the beginning. When people discuss the basics of what America is, well, it was founded at this time. So when you're talking about history and politics, you always get back to the revolution. So I had this kind of mini uh, Revolutionary War sketches that I offered as part of the premium podcast. It, you know, got bogged down a little and I've had a lot of other things. So I believe we just did three of them so far. If you're a new subscriber to the Premium Podcast, though, you should go back to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, premium.com slash members, and then go to bonus episodes. 
So bonus episodes is going to list all of the episodes that you get as a member that people who are just regular subscribers to the podcast uh, do not get at this time. And among them is the, the Revolutionary War sketches. We had one on Concord. We had one on the Forage War, very little known Forage War in New Jersey in 1777. And a third was on the concept of shooting behind trees. Did we really shoot behind trees? And a little bit about uh, the Battle of Camden in South Carolina, closer to the end of the war. So in this one, we're going to focus a little bit on sketching out the American Revolutionary War Soldiers uh, uniform. Let's start with the basics. Back in Revolutionary times, men wore hats, right? They don't always now. They did then. That should not surprise. That was the basic non-worthing ethic for, um, you know, men up until the 1960s in the 20th century. I mean, in 17th century America, hats with tall crowns and wide brims, like the steeple hats worn by those Puritans, you're getting that image, round heads, (laughs) started to go out of style. You would look silly wearing one of those pilgrim hats in 1776. Style. And men wore wigs. So wigs didn't work well with that pilgrim hat. They were thought to spoil the appearance and look precarious atop a wig. Like it would blow off. (laughs) And since wigs were the newest fashion trend for the time, so a hat that would work better. The tri-corner had three sides of the brim turned up, either pinned or buttoned in place. So you're kind of taking that steeple hat in some cases and just turning the corners up. It's not really that much difference from the original round hat. It forms a triangle around the wearer's head like a piece of pie. And it formed a cut that makes the wig visible. Right now we laugh at the wigs, right? But a wig was a big investment for gentlemen at that time. You didn't want to put a hat on that would totally cover it up. So the cut in the tricornet is going to make the wig visible. And although it's associated with the pastime, that's us looking back. It's a very modern hat for these Revolutionary War people. Tricorn was smaller in size due to that folded brim and more easily tucked under the arm when entering a building. A gesture that you did to display the proper social etiquette and respect. You can't do that with a really large, expensive hat. You just kind of tuck it under the arm there. The tricorn would go in conjunction with the new type of lesser, thinner wigs that Americans were generally wearing. Not the big, long one that uh, British barristers and judges, in some cases, still wear today. Um, If you had a lighter wig, or if you were just powdering your hair the way Thomas Jefferson most often did, say, the tricorn worked very well with that. It was made from animal fiber, the most expensive being of beaver hair felt, and the least expensive being of wool felt. And so there was a big variance between them. The style of the tricorn ranged from the very simple to extravagant hats embellished with feathers and trim. Hat brims themselves could also be left plain or dressed with a variety of trims. And although the most common trim was a worsted wool hat braid in black or white, there were also brocades, metallic, and silk trims in various colors, depending on personal preference. Black 
gray, tobacco colors, tan colors were popular choices for the hat's body color. So, you know, it's common to think of all the hats being the same, but the Revolutionary War Army, if anything, on the colonial side, uh, if anything, uh, uh, you know, w- was not uh, uniform, except in the units that were under the direct control of George Washington and where there was funding for it. At the height of its popularity, which you're getting in the 1770s, the tricorn hat was worn not only by the aristocracy, where it had started, uh, but also by common civilians and members of the military. It originally appears as a result of the evolution of that broad-brim round hat used by Spanish soldiers in Flanders during the 17th century. You would pledge, or we would say bind the brims and get that triangular shape. The shape was favored by Spanish soldiers, and when standing in arms, their muskets could be held at their shoulders, right or left, without hitting that hat brim and knocking it off. War broke out between France and Spain over the Spanish Netherlands. And during that war, the, the War of the Spanish Succession, not a, you know, not a, a you know, war that we commonly hear about. And during the subsequent struggle, its use spread to the French armies. Styles brought back to France. Its usage spreads to the French population. So the soldiers are driving the trend, then it goes to the court, eventually, and King Louis makes it fashionable throughout Europe, both as a civilian and military wear. Uh, There's some military thinking behind the tricorn um, as well. We talked about the musket position, but the most common military version of a tricorn had a brim of five inches in the back and four inches in the front. So it's just sticking out that four inches. That's enough to shade the wearer from the sun's rays. There's no sunglasses then, right? And it also serves as rain gutters that directed water away from the face of a soldier who often couldn't escape the elements, either as a sentry or a marching soldier. You know, and when when you look at all these advantages, you see that the you may have thought the tricorn was just some kind of Revolutionary War style, but it's much more than that. The tricorn hat also became a springboard for the organization of the armies with a small addition. On August 20th, 1776, Supreme Commander General George Washington issued general orders that included instructions detailing the use of cockades, feathers, or rows, or knots of ribbons, where you couldn't afford the others, usually worn in a hat or as a badge of office. The Continental Army did not have a uniform in the beginning. They could not afford uniforms. So the cockades served as identification among military personnel of who was who. Field officers were to don pink cockades. Captains were to wear white cockades. And lower officers might wear a green one. It was not until 1783 that an official Union cockade was issued to be worn on the left breast. And I guess we should say a bit more about the the tricorn that... um, You might think that they're totally gone, but there is still one unit that uses them, the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps, one of four premier musical organizations in the United States Army. They perform musical instruments, and they wear uniforms similar to those used by military musicians of the Continental Army during the American Revolution. It's the only unit of its kind, and it was founded February 23, 1960. 
the fife and drum corps, still wearing that tricorn. But no, this isn't what most United States soldiers wear anymore. Tricorn quickly declined in use at the end of the 18th century, evolved into the bicorn. That's just simply two folds, um, widely used by military officers in Europe from the 1790s to World War. You'll probably see some War of 1812 um, paintings where someone's wearing a bicorn like that or Napoleonic War where someone's wearing a bicorn. Um, but the tricorn was replaced by the Shaco at the turn of the 19th century. Um, think the U.S.-Mexican War, and if you're seeing paintings of that and you see that kind of tallish hat with a visor in the front, cylindrical, either in the Mexican Army or the U.S. Army at the time, adorned with some kind of ornamental plate. This started to replace the um, tricorn as we moved on from the Revolutionary War. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. But we also shouldn't think that, especially on the American side, that there was just one type of hat. Most hats during the American Revolution could be described as a cocked hat or round hat, depending on the style. They're made out of wool felt. A very common cap to find in an American militia uh, would have been a knit wool cap. Like mama style, um, a skull cap worn in cooler weather, or just kind of a linen cap in warm weather. 
Most men in the 18th century owned both types. They might have a hat and a cap like that. And they had multiple hats and caps in a lot of cases for different functions. So um, they would bring that out to the field. But to get to what we were hinting at earlier in the episode, let's talk about a different piece of clothing, the hunting shirt. It was not something used continentally, but this kind of ubiquitous hunting shirt worn by American forces during the American Revolution was unknown to, say, the region of New England prior to the arrival of soldiers who were coming from different regions like William Thompson, Daniel Morgan, um, or uh, Michael Cressap's Maryland Brigade. When they arrived at Cambridge Camp surrounding Boston in July and August of 1775 during that siege, it was something to see, the linen hunting shirt, a backcountry garment, which came about on the American frontiers in the years prior to the American Revolution. They also happened to be some of the best riflemen. The hunting shirts were often of a dark material, and the hunting shirt was thought to evoke the dress of Native Americans, and as stories of the rifleman's marksmanship spread not only throughout the colonies, but throughout the ranks of the British Army. George Washington grabbed on to a psychological advantage in outfitting thousands more of the American soldiers in these distinctive shirts. In his headquarters orders for July 24, 1776, Washington wrote that he earnestly encourages the use of hunting shirts, in part because they were justly supposed to carry no small terror to the enemy who think every person wearing one is a complete marksman. George Washington also wrote, No dress can be cheaper, nor more convenient, as the wearer may be cool in the warm weather and warm in cool weather, by putting on underclothes which will not change the outward dress. As with every other aspect of a garment, buttonholes were hand-sewn. Professional tailoring in the 18th century was a male-dominated industry, Many men knew how to do this. Equipment and weapons were also made by hand. So another piece of item that you would see very commonly is a leather cartridge box put together and hand-sewn by skilled letter artificers. Canteens, very necessary, crafted by skilled coopers. Uh, Other items that you might see, in addition to kind of straps, maybe a scabbard for a knife or sword, A haversack, usually made of linen to carry food rations and eating utensils. Those utensils might be a fork made of iron, a pewter or horn spoon, a knife, a plate, a cup. Canteen might be made of wood, tin, or glass. You gotta carry water if you're, you're moving around. A lot of soldiers would carry a fish hook and some twine so could catch some quick eats if they were near a lake or a river. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. We talked a bit about the um, 
pouches, the the cartridge boxes. Um, the Concord pouch is one that survives. Uh, it's a surviving example. It's a body made from two D-shaped pieces of leather sewn outside facing in. And there isn't really much to it. The flap was simply attached to the back edge of the pouch and folded over the top of the pouch, secured in front most often by a leather button thong. The shoulder straps varied considerably in width on different specimens from one and a half inches to two and three-fourths inches, made of plain bark tan leather, colored black, or painted white and left russet-colored. The wooden blocks of the cartridge case would be made of local woods, often pine, poplar, uh, maple, or chestnut, and usually had an odd number of holes arranged in two rows. It was a simplified version of the common British Army shoulder pouch of the French and Indian War era. So ideally, this is what a soldier is going to have, a shirt made of linen or cotton, a black leather stock worn around the neck, a wool coat, usually with collar cuffs and lapels that were different colors, a waistcoat or a vest inside that, usually made of linen or wool, a pair of linen, wool, or cotton trousers or overalls, stockings, and leather shoes. That's at best. (laughs) But probably the most important piece of camp equipment for the American soldier in the American Revolution was the blanket. It protected him against the cold and when he did not have a tent to sleep in from the moisture in the air. It also served as an overcoat when a soldier did not have one. They were usually made of wool, and states considered blankets the priority. When they had limited resources and could supply anything, blankets were the priority. Tents were usually part of the equipment where possible, providing protection from the cold and rain. Various sizes on those tents, depending on the occupant's rank, the officer's larger tents were called marquees. They were made of canvas or heavy cotton, usually about 10 feet across by 14 feet deep by 8 feet high. But a private's tent might just be six and one half feet square by 5 feet high. And that tent would probably hold anywhere from three to five men. There's so much focus on the musket, it's also important to think of the Revolutionary War as a battle of edged weapons. Um, muskets in many cases were inaccurate. Soldiers lined up in long lines and fired massive amounts of lead balls at each other. And commanders hoped these deadly volleys would break holes in the enemy's line. Once that happened, the idea is that soldiers with bayonets would rush in, create panic, and break the enemy's formation. All in all, especially up until the point you get to, say, the Battle of Mammoth, 1778, the British were a little better at doing that. Um, once you broke the enemy's formation, you know, the battle's over. If you have cavalry, you're then riding in and hacking at the panic-stricken opponents and winning that battle. You might get a surrender at that point and running soldiers withdrawal. So thinking of it, you know, it's easy, you know, you want to say like, well, we're past the time of knights and things like that. But to think of the Revolutionary War a bit as a battle of edged weapons, they're critical in the war. If you look at a battle like uh, Guilford Courthouse, it got to be crazy in terms of it was almost a medieval battle. 
that battle was largely decided in bloody hand-to-hand combat with bayonets, swords, and axes. We might totally not even think of tomahawks as something that Patriot soldiers would use if not for that movie of that name with uh, Mel Gibson where he comes flying out with tomahawk in hand. But while the movie got a lot wrong, uh, that's not one thing that it did get wrong. Tomahawks were very commonly used. There were tomahawks in those battles in South Carolina that the movie depicts, and they were tomahawks at Concord. That was one of the things that the British used as in their attempt as propaganda against the Americans that, oh, they were attacked us like savages with a tomahawk. Well, tomahawk, or a small axe, was a very common weapon. Tomahawk comes, we think, from a transliteration of the Algonquin word for to strike down. The first tomahawks were made with wooden shafts and heads of bone, rock, or wood. Europeans introduced the metal blade and traded tomahawks with the Indians, who became very adept at using them in battle and came to greatly prize them. The Continental Congress required militiamen to carry either a tomahawk or a cutting sword. So again, this is this is to for the necessary tree chopping that they're going to engage in, or to cook food. <laughs> um, you know, according to one website on Revolutionary War materials, you take a knife, a knife that has a certain amount of leverage given to you. The tomahawk can be used like a knife. But you also have that 18 inches of handle that gives you a huge amount of difference in power as far as the power of the cutting stroke. It's much more practical, too, as a field tool because you can, again, use it like a knife or you can use it like an axe. So they're going to carry it as a weapon, yes, to chop wood. But when the fighting starts and particularly when the fighting gets close, tomahawks are going to be used, certainly used in that battle in North Carolina, Guilford Courthouse, where the fighting was so severe that it almost became like a medieval battle. And actually, the only reason that Guilford Courthouse uh, was not a huge American victory is that the British made the uh, fateful and tragic decision, of course, to fire on their own troops to simply end the battle because the fighting had gotten so close that they could not fire without firing at their own men. Uh, Riflemen who had no bayonets, the rifle would not support that, would rely on a knife or tomahawk or swords. Uh, Infantrymen might be equipped with a small hanger sword while officers would have a, a short saber. Cavalrymen would definitely have a sword. They're going to, that's going to be very useful in their attack. General Washington was 22 when Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia appointed him a lieutenant colonel of the Virginia militia. He carried an officer's sword, probably his brother Lawrence's sword, who had died two years earlier and had served in the British Army. It's also clear from Washington's own writings that he gave swords as rewards for valor. In September of 1782, at a joint Franco-American celebration, The general had three true American heroes join him for dinner. He presented each with a dress sword and a brace of pistols. They were the enlisted men who had captured British Major Andre, John Pauling, David Williams, and Isaac Van Wart. After the war, Congress presented to him 10 of the 15 dress swords they had awarded to him during the war. They were swords on paper during that effort. It's believed that many of the swords have been captured from British or Hessian officers. There were iron foundries in America, but the British Iron Act had put a limit on that. Iron production was limited, 
Um, so a lot of these swords on the American side are going to be from captured from British or Hessians. I mean, it, it, to, to know how important swords were for the time of revolution, it's important to review the clause in Washington's will and testament, wherein he bequeathed five of his swords to his nephews. To each of my nephews, William Augustine Washington, George Lewis, George Steptoe Washington, Bushrod Washington, later became a Supreme Court Justice, and Samuel Washington, I give one of the swords of which I may die possessed. And they are chosen the order that they are named. These swords are accompanied with an injunction not to unsheath them for the purpose of shedding blood, except it be for self-defense or in defense of their country and its rights, and in the later case, to keep them unsheathed and prefer falling with them in their hands to the relinquishment thereof. That's a quick sketch on the Revolutionary War. Everything from the tricorn hats to the menacing hunting shirts to the tomahawk. And uh, I hope to continue this Revolutionary War as sketches series as we move on. <laughs>